the second round than I did the first. Uh, they probably didn't get it here in Denver, so we'll repeat what's been said. I, uh, John did say that I could take a little extra time. It looks like we've already done that. Uh, no, no, just keep on going. Oh, I, I, I appreciate that. I, I do have a fairly short message today, though, and I took a little extra time the last two times, so uh, I'll try to keep it short anyway. So, let's begin again. Uh, and it's the beginning of this series on the Minor Prophets. We looked first at Hosea and our own adultery and idolatry, and we saw a message there of repentance and to prepare ourselves. We went to Joel, and we saw who God is and what He will do to prove who He is. And the message there again is to prepare ourselves spiritually for the trouble that is to come. We went to Amos, where it says our enemies will be punished in the beginning, and then shows that Judah and Israel and all Jacob, the whole family of Israel, the whole church for that matter, will be punished as well. He said, you've suffered famine, blight, and mildew, but now prepare to meet your God, for I will send total famine and destruction upon you. He is only going to save a remnant out of the church and out of the physical nation once this is all over, I hasten to add. He introduces the two witnesses holding the plumb line to measure the uprightness of the church, and he introduces them by asking who will stand in Jacob twice, and apparently two do. Now, two weeks ago, we went into the book of Obadiah, which addresses one of the two main enemies of Jacob, that is, both of the church and the nation. And we saw that Esau and Edom not only will, but already are doing great damage behind the scenes, that they're hidden for the most part. There is a severe warning here of what will befall them as a result of their actions against both the church and the physical Israel. We identified Edom as the progeny of Esau, bent on destroying Jacob and regaining the birthright, and that that is a perpetual hatred that exists even to this day wherever Edomites and Jacobites are found. Now the book of Jonah is preached after uh, Hosea, Joel, and Amos, and Obadiah for that matter, but after those three heavy messages and burdens about the church and our problems, then we hear about our enemies, and now we come to the book of Jonah, which in one way seems a bit innocuous. We've had strong messages. Here we have a fish story, don't we? Or is there more to it than that? Can you relax and listen to a fish story today? Don't believe it. Because it is sandwiched in here before the book of Micah, which gives a great deal more instruction specifically to the church and to the physical nations as it applies. But there's a different message in here. And we need to be sure that we're getting the message of Jonah. As I began to study this in preparation for this series, I thought, well, this is, this is a nice book. Uh, but I did not see the full message that is here. Maybe I don't yet, but I think I see a whole lot more than I did when I first started reading it. Now let's go back to 2 Kings, chapter 14, before we really get into the book of Jonah, because it lays the background for Jonah's attitude, what he was doing prior to what God told him to do in the, to, to do in the book of Jonah, and we might begin to understand his attitudes a little bit more once we understand this. 2 Kings 14, verse 23. Uh, this is at the beginning of the kingship of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, verse 23. This is a different Jeroboam than the previous one who was evil against God. He's mentioned in verse 24, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, as opposed to Jeroboam, the son of Joash. But in some respects, they're two peas in a pod. Notice verse 24, And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, departed not from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. So they're different kings, different individuals, but the same problems. But now notice what this Jeroboam the son of Joash did. Verse 25, He restored the coast of Israel from the entering of Hamath up in the north to the sea of the plain in the south, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he spoke by the hand of his servant Jonah, the son of Omidiah the prophet, which was of Gath-Heper. 
So Jonah apparently had brought, as a priest, prophet, or minister of God, a message of restoral, a message of peace, a message of safe coastlines, of safe borders, of peace, security, and unity. The word Jonah, the name means dove. And that was the kind of message apparently that Jonah brought. A dove's message of peace, of prosperity, of restoral. Now, why was this under a wicked king? Verse 26. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, and it was very bitter. For there was not any shut up, nor any left. Uh, king, the New King James says, not any bond or free nor any helper for Israel. So of all the people of Israel, there was not really a leader or anyone who could help their plight. But God brought a message of peace, security, and unity through Jonah, and through this king that was instituted, evil as he was. And here's the reason. Verse 27, And the Lord said not that he would blot out the name of the Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam. So because of the promises to Abraham Abraham, and subsequently to the people of Israel who had made a covenant with him, in spite of their wickedness, God had said, I will not blot them out. And Jonah had indeed been preaching a dove's message to them, and that's what had been fulfilled. He knew of Assyria, its capital being Nineveh, and he knew that Nineveh was the designated punisher and destroyer of Israel. This had been something that the people were aware of, that Assyria was an enemy. So this message of Dove was not valid anymore. He had to have a change of direction in his ministry, and it was quite a violent change in that direction. He was not ready to receive that, as we shall soon see. Now, it became a time for a message of warning, not to Israel so much at this point, but to Assyria. But we will find that the message was not to the Assyrian. The message was to Jonah and to you and me. Strange as that may seem this early in the sermon. So with that in mind, I'm going to read a letter to you which I received over the internet this morning. It was forwarded to me to underscore the message of warning not to Assyria necessarily but to Israel and we'll see how it ties in later on but this underscores very much the situation it is written by it is a letter written by Sasha Veljic and I'm sure I did not pronounce that correctly but he is from Belgrade, Yugoslavia he is a converted apparently member of God's church I do not, do not know it, which branch he might be a part of at this time but one of God's people from possibly quite some time back. Here is his letter. Most dear friends and family, the state of emergency has been declared for the first time after the last world war. It is almost incredible that these things are happening to us. Complacent Americans, prick up your ears. It's happening to God's people in Yugoslavia today. And it will be here. Atmosphere in the city and the country is fairly tense. And who knows what is going to happen. He's confused. He's frustrated. He has no idea where this is all going to lead. And neither do I. And neither do you. All flights from Belgrade have been canceled shades of things to come. The only possible way is to travel by bus to Budapest and then catch a plane from there. I certainly want to ask for your prayers. Until Friday night, when the bus is leaving from Belgrade, anything could happen. So apparently, if this internet, internet message came this morning, I suppose he sent it Friday evening or Sabbath evening to someone in the States, and then it was forwarded around, as our internet network does. And he has to wait now a full week while NATO and the United States are bombing the whole area to catch a bus, if the bus runs, if the bus is allowed outside, if there's enough room for him to get on it, if, 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 if he is alive. 
Border lines may be closed completely, thus it would be impossible to leave the country, quoting again. Also, all eligible for military may be conscripted and armed. However, as you know, we wouldn't go for that. Then we may have two options if caught, prison or bullet. In a better case, we would be thrown into prison. In worse, there would be no court or verdict but shooting of deserters. I cannot tell you anything since everything is not predictable anymore. Sorry that I cannot be more positive. In case that we stay over here, we will be hiding. May God be with us. Much love, Sasha. P.S. I will try to maintain computer contact. If I don't reach you in any soon time, then you should know that we have lost electricity or that our providers are not working anymore, or that all the hours have been used up and I don't have any money or mobility to renew my online. That's our brother. We wonder, will it come on us? We know it will. Do we really believe it in our hearts? Do we understand that all Israel is going to be destroyed before the destroyer? And that that is what Jonah was facing up to in this situation? He knew Israel would be destroyed for their sins. And he liked the dove message better. He liked the idea that maybe we have 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 more years to rear children and live as we are. He did not want to see what could come on his country. And yet it is coming on us, and it is on our brethren, wherever they might be, in Kosovo or Yugoslavia somewhere. So I want us to understand, we are not listening here to a nice story, but we are listening to a judgment from Almighty God. Now let's go to the book of Jonah and pick the story up. God doesn't give much introduction here. He just leaps right into the thing. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Now what was Jonah's reaction to his God here? But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He understood the political implications of what God had just told him. He knew the Assyrian was the destroyer. He knew that Assyria, from what God had told him, and I'm sure that the message was greater than what is given here in verse 2, I'm sure God had told him to preach repentance to Nineveh and that he might save Nineveh. Well, what did Jonah want to happen to Nineveh? Jonah wanted to see them die in their sins so they could not be a destroyer to come on Israel. And in his own mind, he said, I will not preach that message. I want them destroyed. He had become quite comfortable preaching a message of peace and safety to Israel. He had a nice, safe ministry. Was not the king listening and heeding his advice? He had a mutual admiration society going on with the king. He didn't want that messed up. Why rock the boat? But God had suddenly really rocked his boat. So what did he do? He said, Spain sounds like a lovely place. Went down bought himself a ticket to go to Spain to get away from the presence of God. He ran from his responsibility. He might have said, well, it'll be so divisive to preach this. It won't be accepted. It will ruin my reputation as a dove among the people of Israel if I go to our enemy Assyria and preach to them. I just can't make myself go do what you tell me to do. Reminds me of Moses. Well, you know, I stutter or something. Whatever the problem was. Whatever the excuse was. And God said, okay. 
Moses. Aaron will speak. But you're not getting off the hook. Go anyway. And suffer the loss of shame, the loss of face and pride by not even, you know, you've got to say it to Aaron and then Aaron's got to say it publicly. But you're not getting off the hook. We'll see that Jonah didn't get off the hook very fast either. So he said, I'd rather be in Spain than do what you want me to do. So he fled from God and his responsibility. He got on the boat, and then, verse 4, the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so the ship was like to be broken and sink. So the sailors were afraid and cried every man to his, his God. I don't know if this was a, an Israelitish ship or not, very possible, sailing out of a port of Israel to Spain, where there were Israelites as well at that point. But mariners being what they are, there may have been a very great mix of people on this boat as well. So they all prayed to their God, and we all have our gods today. So start plugging ourselves in here a little bit. The different things we look to as opposed to the true God and doing what he wants us to do, sometimes we do what we want to do. So they looked to their God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship to the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was gone down into the sides of the ship, and he lay and was fast asleep. Now that's strange, isn't it? Great storm, but see, Jonah was content. I got out of that one. Now he was relaxed, out of sight, out of mind. God's clear back there in Israel, I'm out here in this boat, and I'm going to be okay. So he was able to sleep. He thought he had made his getaway. Was God prepared for this? <laughs> well, you already know a lot of the story. They said everyone to his fellow... Well, the shipmaster came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? The rest of us are scared to death out here. Get up. Call upon your God. If so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said everyone to his fellow, Come and let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lots fell upon Jonah. Uh, Israelites cast lots pretty often, so apparently there were some Israelites there, unless Gentiles were casting lots as well. But the lots, you remember, were cast to God in Israel. <clears throat> so we may have an Israel here who knew of God, but had found their own gods. Then said, said they to him, Tell us, we pray you, for whose cause this evil is upon us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And of what people are you? So they played 20 questions with him. They wanted to find out quickly what is going on here. He said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven. Right. Yeah, he may have feared. He may have been in terror. But he didn't fear enough to do what God told him to do. He was stubborn. He was rebellious. He was self-centered. He wanted to maintain his ministry the way the ministry was at that time. He did not want to switch gears and go to a different country and a different people. So he rebelled and jumped the ship to Spain. So he's a bit hypocritical here in saying, I fear the Lord God of heaven which has made the sea and the dry land. Now that was his mentality, that was his emotion perhaps, but that was not the fruits we can give God lip service and yet our fruits belie what we say with our mouths too often. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said to him, what have, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Ahead of time, he said, God put me in a tight place here. I've got my tail in the crack. I'm going to Spain. He let them know ahead of time what was going on. And I am sure he had told them, I'm not about to deliver this message. It would destroy my reputation in Israel. It would create division. I can't do what God told me to do. Secondly, none of them might repent and not be destroyed, bringing trouble on the church. I will opt out on this message, or more modernly, I'm out of here on this one, or don't go there, is what we would say today. I'm leaving this one alone. I'm getting away. Now remember that this history of Israel was acted out over hundreds of years, and it's compacted now. I do not believe the book of Jonah in here 
or is here just as a fish story to tell us about Jonah and what he did. If God had been dealing with Jonah only, there was no sense in recording it for today. So there's got to be more message than that. Question, will there be a message to the destroyer in this end time? Perhaps a brief repentance as Nineveh did before he does his thing anyway. You see, because Nineveh did repent before this story is over, but it was not a lasting repentance. And they are still the destroyer. So, we shall see. There is a hint about this perhaps in the book of Micah, followed by Nahum, which is against Assyria, because they didn't stay repentant and aren't repentant today. Now Jonah, let's go on in verse 11. Then said they to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm to us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said to them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm to you. See, Jonah knew why the storm was there. He thought he had escaped. He went down, went to sleep. The storm hit. He said, Oh, God found me. I didn't get away after all. What do we think we can get away with, with God? He sees all. He knows all. He's prepared. He knows what to do about it. So Jonah said, the only thing you can do is throw me in the sea, and I would rather be thrown in the sea and drown than to do what God told me to do. What is our sticking point? We found Jonah's here. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to bring it to the land, but they could not, for the sea was... We read that, or I guess... Is it repeated? Anyway, verse 14. Wherefore they cried to the Lord and said, We beseech you, O Lord, we beseech you, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. This looks like your retribution to Jonah. Please don't include us in it. So they took up Jonah and cast him forth into the sea. In other words, they said, Oh, well, there's no sense in all this roaring. Let's just get rid of the pariah. And once the nemesis was overboard, they could relax and God would cause the sea to quit her raging. And that's exactly what happened. So they were willing to sacrifice Jonah. Then, when the wind stopped, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice unto the Lord and made vows. I'll go to church every Sunday from now on. You've heard those stories. You'll just deliver me from this. I'll be a good Christian henceforth. Isn't it amazing about human beings? I wonder how long they kept those vows. That's a different story. But did God know what to do about all this? The Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly. My King James margin says bowels. I think I like that one better because he was down in the digester is where he was for the next three days. He was in there three days and three nights being churned by digestive juices as we'll see a little later on, seaweed wrapped around his head, and so forth. Kind of a scary position to be in. What would you do if a big fish swallowed you? Chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God out of the fish's bowels. He'd been running from God. He didn't want to do what God said. But suddenly he was inside this fish, and the fish was swimming around, so he prayed to God. He had been pretty stubborn, and now what he did is pretty predictable, I think. Once we find ourselves between a rock and a hard place, we start praying. And here's what he said. And said, I cried by reason of my affliction. His mind is still on himself and his affliction. Unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of the grave cried I, and you heard my voice. You are listening up there, are you not? <laughs> I think it's part of what this prayer is. Because he's still in there. For you had cast me into the deep in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about. All your billows and your waves passed over me. Then said I, I am cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. I want to tie quickly Isaiah 54 in there, because we're going to see that this is applying to us before we're done here. I promise you that, and it will happen. God willing, I don't fall over before I finish, I mean. 
Uh, let's go back to Isaiah 54. And here we'll begin in verse 7. He's talking about his people, the church here. Verse uh, 6. For the Lord has called you as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth when you were refused as your God. For a small moment have I forsaken you, but with great mercies will I gather you. In a little wrath I hid my face for you, from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. So Jonah found himself in the same place. God had turned his face from him. I am cast out of your sight, he says here in verse 5, but I know what I need to do. I look toward your holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The depth closed me round about. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains, so the dove dove from within the fish. The earth with her bars was about me forever. In other words, I know I'm fish poop unless something happens here. This is forever. I've had it. I'm in the belly. I'm being dissolved, being digested in here. Yet you have brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. This was not a little submarine that God had produced that had a galley and a nice bunk on one side and uh, fresh oxygen coming in all the time. This was a fish specially prepared with a mouth big enough to swallow Jonah. Somehow God did get oxygen to him, obviously, so that he could live. But he had seaweeds wrapped around his head, and every once in a while maybe some sea cucumbers came down the hatch on top of him, along with seawater and all, and he choked and gagged. He was not having a good time down here. It reminds me of when I was a boy, oh, 10 to 14 years of age, and uh, near my granddad's place up in New Mexico in the mountains, we had found some caves. These caves went for hundreds of yards back into the side of the mountain, and many of them were so short that you had to get down and crawl on your belly through the porcupine and the rat manure, and uh, with fear of rattlesnakes always present in your mind, and maybe just a flashlight. And it was a bit scary in there because I would get back in maybe two or three hundred yards into the mountain and these very low things where I couldn't even raise my head sometimes. You had to sort of wriggle in like a snake to get back in there. But at age 10 and 14, you know, over 214, you'd do most anything. But every once in a while, I would stop and think, what if I hit this flashlight against a rock and it quit? And what if I've cornered a rattlesnake back here somewhere and he becomes angry with me and I can't see and I know that there is a rattlesnake and I can imagine there are 15 rattlesnakes around me and I can't even see which way to go to get out of here. I remember some terrifying thoughts. Fortunately, I don't tend to be terribly claustrophobic or didn't then, I might today. But I can imagine the, the feeling of dread and fear that came over me back in those caves must have been somewhat what Jonah felt in here as the fish dived to the bottom, the base of the mountains, he says, and seaweed and water came in as the whale, or the, not the whale, the fish ate. And he's glub-glub in here being digested. That's the situation he was in. Some of you are very claustrophobic. Just think about this. Some of you would go start raving insane within the first few minutes. And maybe we all would. I don't know before very long. So what does he say? Verse 7, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord. Only God can save me now. We do that in moments of terror, don't we? Oh God, save me. And my prayer came into you, into your holy temple. And here's the essence of his prayer. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. Now, he was in a position where he had forsaken God, had run from God. He had no call for mercy. And it was, own, it was his own vanity, his own ego, his own stubbornness and spiritual pride that it caused him to say, I will not do what God just told me to do. I think things will be nice in Spain. But God was ready, and he prepared this all ahead of time because he knew exactly what Jonah would do. He was a dove, not a hawk. So he recognized, to some degree, what his problem was. 
Verse 9, But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. If you'll just deliver me, I will sing to you with thanksgiving. Now how does that compare with his attitude in chapter 4, verse 1? Just a little while later, what God did or said or, or was going to do displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was very angry. Ready to bite nails in two, he was so angry. What happened to this prayer back here? I will sacrifice with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that I have vowed. I am your servant God. Get me out of here and not out that end of the fish. Please out the other end of the fish. And I'll do anything you say from now on. I told you I would do that when I entered the ministry. But now for reasons of my own, I'm not quite ready to deliver the message just the way you want it delivered. That's all changing, God. Salvation is of the Lord. He did recognize that, verse 4. You're the only one that can save me. I mean, the end of, that's the fourth point in the prayer, end of verse 9. So God said, okay. Now, he knew that Jonah's attitude would deteriorate again. He knew that Jonah was not where he wanted him to be, but he was at least compliant enough that he wouldn't jump another ship to Spain. So he spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the, the dry land. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, say, I said this before and you ran. I'm going to say it again. Arise, go to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. It was an exceeding city of three days' journey, long ways across. Now, before we get into this, I want to go back to Matthew 12, because Christ cites this example of Jonah. Matthew 12. And we have used Matthew 12 to prove that uh, the Sabbath comes on Sabbath from Wednesday to Saturday, three days and three nights, has been our main use of the Scripture. But that is not the message that is here. It's important, and the sign of Jonah was pointed out to the Pharisees, but that is not the real message that Christ had for these people. He told them in verse 33 of Matthew 12, Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. And then he called them a pack of snakes. That was their fruit. Now this tended to upset them. But he said, How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. You are what you are, and you've got a snake's heart. So it came on down where they said to him, verse 38, probably somewhat tauntingly and hatefully, Well, let's see a sign from you that you have the authority to tell us, the righteous, this. Because they were full of pride and haughtiness and leaven. But he answered, verse 39, and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now notice the message. The men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold a greater than Jonah is here. So the message is to whom? To Nineveh? No, they're going to come up in the second resurrection and Assyria will repent and he said they are going to have a better attitude than you people of Israel. This message is to Israel, not to Nineveh. He said, you didn't learn from what I did with Nineveh. And a greater than Jonah is standing here before you and you won't listen to me either. I'm going to be three days and three nights in the grave like Jonah was. You had better listen to me. He used another example. Verse 42, the queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation. Second resurrection again. And shall condemn it, for she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. I'm right here with you. You didn't have to travel at all like the queen of Sheba did, or the queen of the south. But she's going to outshine you in the resurrection. He was also telling them, you won't be in the first resurrection. You're coming up in the second. You're not converted. 
Then he says, I, the Son of God, am here with you. But I'm going to depart. This is implied now. But the unclean spirit of Satan, the devil is on you. And when I'm not here to tell you what you are, the devil is going to control you again. And bring seven times worse demons upon you. This is a pretty strong message to Israel. Or the representatives of Israel. As to what happened back here in the book of Jonah. The message was to repentance, not to Nineveh, but to Israel. And Christ used Jonah's message of repentance against the Pharisees of Israel. <coughs> Who is the Israel of God today? Notice that Jonah's message was to Nineveh. But God's message was mostly to Jonah. He was the one that God worked with through this whole thing, not Nineveh. Jonah's attitude stunk. And Christ used this book to preach to Israel about their attitudes. The attitudes of Jonah we need to consider very strongly because there's very little said about Nineveh in here except they repented. <coughs> but boy, does he work on Jonah's attitude through the rest of this book. Now let's go on. <coughs> So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And it was a big city. It took three days to walk across it. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And this is the kind of repentance that is not seen in Israel. So the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. The word came to the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth and satin ashes. And look what they did. He caused it to be proclaimed and published through Nineveh by the, by the decree of the king and his noble saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. You and I have been warned that we needed to turn wholeheartedly to God in the prophecies preceding this one. How much have we really taken stock seriously? And now we're coming on the Passover in the days of unleavened bread. These people were serious about this. Now Jonah may have been the very first white man on earth. Because he had been in those digestive juices for three days. And I've heard stories or, or historical accounts that Jonah was bleached absolutely pure white from head to foot as a result of being in the fish's belly and those digestive juices oozing and working back and forth on him. He must have been a scary sight. And perhaps they had heard the story about this guy being spit out on the beach. And it scared these Ninevites clear down to their stockings. They didn't really even know the true God. But this guy was scary. And boy, did they repent, even down to making the animals fast. How are we doing so far? But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let them turn every one from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? This is the way we should sound. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented of the evil that he had said that he would do to them, and he did it not. Remember that in the millennium, Egypt, Assyria, and Israel will be as one. These people in the millennium, the Assyrians from all ages, are going to repent, and they're going to be a part of the kingdom of God. Now, let's go to... Oh, I wanted to throw an additional point in here before we leave chapter 3. Let's back up a moment. He said, preach, in verse 2, to it the preaching that I bid you. Don't diminish it. Say it just like I am saying it to you. Don't be careless about it. And I want to tie that with Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32. And let's begin in verse 19. Isaiah 32. Or excuse me, verse 9 I want. Rise up, you women, or churches, that are at ease. Hear my voice, you careless daughters. And right now we have many daughters 
of the church. Give ear to my speech. As the margin says, days above a year shall you be troubled. Is this referring to what Amos said in total destruction? Will we be troubled days above a year? I don't know, just a thought. You careless women, for the vintage shall fail, the gathering shall not come. Tremble, you women that are at ease. Be troubled, you careless ones. Strip you and make you bare, and gird sackcloth upon your loins. loins. They shall lament for the tits, for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine. Upon the land of my people shall come up thorns and briars, yea, upon all the houses of joy in the joyous city. No matter how joyous our congregation might seem to be. Because the palaces shall be forsaken, the multitude of the city shall be left, the forts and towers shall be for dens forever, a joy of wild asses and a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness be a fruitful field, and the fruitful field be counted for a forest, and so on. Then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness remain in the fruitful field, and the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever." This begins in the book of Haggai, where God puts the church back together and says, Here, I will bring peace. So if we dwell carelessly, we are going to be destroyed. We have to do things just the way God says they must be done. To heed his words very carefully. Remember John's sermon from the feast about Uzzah and about Eli's sons on the series on the fear of God? I just heard it recently. They thought they were doing okay. They thought their heart was right. But they didn't do it just like God said. And that is important for us now. He made the point to Jonah. You preach it like I told you. Just according to my words. Don't diminish it. I wanted to get to that before I left chapter 3, even though it means backtracking a bit. Now, if you've noticed, there is very little prophecy in the book of Jonah. It is an attitude adjustment book. That's what it's all about, adjusting the attitude of Jonah. Nineveh almost is a sidelight in that sense. Now, let's go on in chapter 4. God repented of what he was going to do. And this displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. All that repentance in the fish's belly was suddenly gone. He saw, God's going to do this anyway. These people have repented, and God is not going to destroy them, and I am so angry about it. And he prayed to the Lord and said, I pray you, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? I told you what was going to happen. If I preached this message of repentance, they would repent and they would be saved and they'll be used to destroy Israel later on. I told you, God, what was going to happen. Why didn't you see what would happen, oh Lord? I saw it. Why couldn't you see it? That's what Jonah's telling God here. And I mean he was angry. Therefore, he's justifying what he had done. You didn't understand, God. You just don't understand. How many times do we say that? You just don't understand my situation. I really need this lollipop. Or whatever we desire at the moment. Therefore I fled before you to Tarshish. I was justified in what I did. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and relent you of the evil. I knew you'd do this. He still was not in accord with what God had told him to do. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech you, my life from me. It is better for me to die than to live. God, and he said, kill me! Get it over with! I know I was right. You just wouldn't see it. Then said the Lord, <laughs> Is this smart to be angry? At me? That's kind of a paraphrase, but I think it encapsulates the attitude. And he proved <laughs> what his attitude really was. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. 
I'm going to go out here and build myself a little hut, and I'm going to sit on it, under it, and I'm going to watch in self-pity and self-righteousness and stubbornness and intractability and see what you are going to do. I suspect he was very haughty at this point because he had just told God off just prior to this. And the Lord God prepared to go. God was always prepared. He knew what to do next. And made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him out from his grief. Now, not out of his attitude, but from the heat of the sun and the grief that the eastern sun brought down on his head. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. Oh, he's suddenly thankful. I'm thankful for the shade. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day and it smote the gourd that it withered. I think God had his tongue in his cheek a little bit here. I'll fix you when you're a stinking, rotten attitude. Ever been here, brother? And it came to pass when the sun rose that God prepared a vehement east wind and the sun beat on the head of Jonah that he fainted and wished in himself to die and said again, It is better for me to die than to live. All right, you gave me a gourd. You gave me a vine. It shaded me. Now you wilt the vine and I'd rather die. He still doesn't have too good an attitude here, I don't think. He still wanted his way. I don't want your program, God. I don't want the way you have done things in the church. I think I have a better idea. Boy, has that gone around in the church a lot in the last 11 years. I have a better idea than that old Herbert Armstrong fellow. He's dead and I'm alive and I'm smarter than he was. Yeah, right. God said to Jonah, Do you well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even to death. The third time he says this. I am justified in what I want done and what you should do and what you should have done. So straighten out God and do this the way it ought to be because I preached peace and happiness and prosperity to Israel and here you're preserving their enemies so they can come kill us. And I'm angry. And I'd rather die than go back to Israel and have the church look down upon me because I did what you said. What will we do for the sake of unity and harmony? Unity and harmony is fine as long as it's in line with what God wants done. Otherwise, it's going to fall apart anyway. And Israel was already falling apart and would have to be punished. Jonah knew, I mean, God knew what was going to happen. Jonah just thought he did. Then said the Lord, verse 10, You have had pity on the gourd for the which you have not labored, neither made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. What did you have to do with this, Jonah? I did it. And I gave you shade for a while, and then I left you just like you were. What's your gripe here? God can give blessings. He can take blessings away. And we better have the right attitude. Should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle? Here's 120,000 people. I don't know whether it's a saying that there are that many babies and then that many more because they're so young they can't discern their right and their left, but I think he's just referring to them as people who don't have any idea what's going on. They don't understand God. They don't know anything about history. They don't know anything about the future, what is going to happen. As far as their understanding of what's happening here, they don't know their right hand from their left. They're just going to be victims unless I preserve them. I can have mercy where I want to have mercy. I can do what I want to do. Now, God is going to give us some more instruction in Micah and in Zephaniah and in Haggai and in Zechariah and in Malachi, and it's going to become stronger direction for us beyond the warnings of Amos, uh, Jonah, I can't say them right now, Amos. I should start with Hosea, Joel, and Amos. Then I get it right instead of trying to go backwards. So there's more instruction to come from God. Are we ready for His solutions? That is the question. Jonah's attitude, even at this point, was I'll do it, but I won't like it. I'll do what you say, but I don't have to like it. 
I'd rather die. Not really godly. Still stubborn, still selfish, still rebellious, still wanting to do it his way rather than what God had ordained for him to do. And this is Jonah's last recorded attitude. I do well to be angry to death. And the book is left with Jonah's story somewhat unresolved. I believe God did this this intentionally. There are instructions ahead for us, and our attitudes are still unresolved. Now with Moses, the story ultimately was resolved. With the book of Job, 42 chapters, and the story was resolved, and Job, Job came out with the right attitude. But with Jonah, the last recorded history of Jonah we have is I'd rather die, God, than do what you tell me to do. Why is this here like this? Is there some message for us here in the middle of the minor prophets before God goes on with the story flow? Is Jonah interjected here so that we might check our attitudes? Are we truly humble? Are we really ready to do whatever God tells us to do, no matter what the apparent cost? Because Jonah didn't think it was worth the cost. Even after the fish episode, after all that terror and fear and closeness to death, when he was spit out, he unwillingly complied and then be through a temper tantrum when God didn't do what he thought should be done. He went and preached that message, and then he sat on a hill in self-pity and self-righteous indignation and said, Woe is me. God just isn't very bright. God chose mercy. Jonah chose pouting and denial over God's instructions, decisions, and modus operandi. This is not a fish story, brethren. It is about a man who disagreed with God's instructions, ran from them, complied, with a, but with a bad attitude, under pressure, and was left pouting as God went ahead and did it his way. God is going to wrap this end of the age up his way. We can be left pouting on a hill saying, I don't think that's quite the right way to go about it. Or we can read the instructions from God and we can heed them and very obediently and lovingly and humbly simply believe God and do as he instructs us. We've already had quite a little instruction about repentance and about seeking God with our whole hearts, even as Nineveh did. And boy, did they take it to the nth degree. Not even the animals got to eat or drink because they got serious about this. Jonah really did not. Jonah had a bad attitude right up till the very end. I don't know where Jonah's going to show up. And maybe God went ahead and worked with Jonah. Maybe Jonah changed his attitude later on. But I think God left this whole thing this way without resolution. Because it's written right here in the end time prophecies for you and me. God will do what he wishes. And we will either lovingly comply with him, or we're going to be left on a hill like Jonah, saying, why don't you do it my way, Lord? End of transmission.